All right, and welcome back to another episode of the Business of Fitness Podcast. I'm Jason Klepa, and on today's episode, we have longtime friend, fitness extraordinaire, and real estate mogul, Joe Gigantino. Now, Joe and I have known each other for a lot of years, and he's really inspired me in a number of different ways. But one way in particular is how he's been able to capitalize on real estate as he's built his fitness business, which is something I'm looking for for our business is how do we get into it where you're not only generating income from your business, but you're also creating these these sustainable uh, portfolio items like real estate for the long term. And uh, I, I was excited to talk to Joe today. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. We talk about lease first buy. We talk about triple nets. We talk about what to look for in your leases. And I hope you guys like it as much as I did. Now, before we dive into the episode, I just want to let you know that if you're a gym owner out there and you haven't checked out the NC Fit Collective, our session plans and our programming are designed by a team of experts. We put it on our own app and we distribute daily videos to all of our coaches worldwide. If you're out there and you're looking for a product to help you with your session plans, your programming to provide consistency, please shoot us an email to collective at nc.fit or visit the collective channel on Instagram. Now, Let's uh let's get into this one, guys. Let's all make sure we're rising the tides. Let's listen about real estate and let's dive into the episode now. All right, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Business of Fitness Podcast. I'm Jason Klepa, and on today's episode, we have a second-time Business of Fitness uh, contributor, Joe Gigantino. Now, Joe and I have known each other for a long, long time. He started in the gym business years and years ago, and what was unique about Joe, and which is the subject we're going to dive into today, is as an owner-operator, should you lease or should you purchase your building? And one thing that Joe did a really good job of, which I've always looked up to, is that early on in his career, he actually found a club, he bought the land that it was on, and essentially he paid his mortgage throughout all the years. So now he's sitting on a beautiful piece of property. And I want to talk about how did he do that? And how did he know, how did he even think about that going into it? Because for some of us owners out there, all we're thinking about is leasing, but maybe it's time for you to buy. So let's dive into it. Joe Jig, thanks for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. Um, there's a number of places to start, but why don't we start here? You early on, you used to be selling gym memberships and then you got into your Milpitas club and you chose to buy the club. And then why did you decide to buy the club and the land it was on versus trying to do a lease deal? Um, well, during that time uh, in my career, I had already started some gyms and sold them and I had a couple dollars um, in my pocket. So there was a... Uh, um, kind of just stepping back when you lease a building and you start these gyms, you sign a lot of documents that basically put your liability on the line. So when you sign a lease, if it's a five-year lease and it's 10,000 a month, it's 120,000 a year, you're signing yourself up for basically $600,000 worth of liability. At a young age, I really didn't realize that and understand that and didn't have any assets. So I just signed all the leases, equipment leases and things like that. After I sold the business, um, I thought, okay, when I sell the business, I'm free and clear of all the leases. And again, I was young, so I didn't really have the understanding. Um, when the person that bought my businesses went out of business, um, the owners of the building and the equipment lease companies all came after me because I was right. on the signature. Right. So uh, it opened my eyes to uh, liability 
and I saw the writing on the wall and I had a couple dollars in my pocket. So I said, well, these creditors are going to come after me if I don't do something with this money. They'll just, they'll just put a lien and take it out of my bank account. So um, what I did was I negotiated with them. And during that time I was negotiating with the creditors, I um, found a building that was for sale, found a club that was for sale. And I bought it through the SBA program. So it was more of a defensive move to try to save the couple bucks I had in my, in my checking account or in my savings account than it was being smart to know that, hey, I should buy real estate. Um, so after I found this location and I kind of figured out the numbers and I figured, well, if I rented the building, it's going to cost me almost exactly what I would be paying for rent. Right. Um, or, you know, if, if I bought it and had a mortgage. And I uh, was able to find a gentleman at Santa Cruz that uh, financed the deal um, through the SBA. Didn't really understand about the SBA. He was the one who educated me on the SBA. And what the SBA program is under the 504 program, you only have to put 10% down. So um, on a million dollar building here in the Bay Area, that's you know kind of common. But you know on a, it was 10%, so $100,000 down. And if you're buying a you know five hundred thousand dollar building, it's you know fifty thousand dollars down. The difference that what what I really thought about was that at least I own the asset, even though I have a mortgage with the bank. And if anybody's going to come after me credit wise, they're going to have to lien the property, and I'll just won't sell it. I'll eventually pay them off. Uh, you know, long story short, it took me um, after negotiating all that debt with uh, the first clubs that I had owned after the guy went out of business. Um, it took me 11 years to pay everybody off. It was close to uh, $360,000 that I owed um, from not my doing, but because my name was on the leases and the liability of the of the property and stuff. Um, it cost me, uh, yeah, it took me 11 years to pay it off. That Milpitas Club was the one that helped me do it. So um, it was more of an accident that I bought it after I realized, hey, this thing is appreciating. I'm paying down the mortgage every month instead of paying an, an owner rent. Um, why don't I buy another one? And then that's when we ended up getting, you know, a few more. So you, you talk about the SBA loan. I think that's really interesting. So, and then you, you talked about two things, three things, actually, I want to touch base on. So the first one is that I think a lot of owners don't recognize how much risk and liability is actually associated with signing your name on a lease. Mm. Right. So let's, that's the first thing I want to talk sure. about. Second thing I want to talk about is, you know, dive a little bit deeper into what type of credentials you needed to get this SBA loan. And, um, you know, as a, as a third option, basically what I'd like to dive into is how, what the difference was. And if you're an owner today, how could you go out and maybe encourage your landlord to flip into a purchase deal? I mean, I, I want to dive into a couple of this. Let's start here though. When you and your partner dissolved, you were stuck on the hook with a bunch of liability. Correct. What type of liability was that? And how many owners out there do you think are in that exact same boat, but might just not realize it? Like if you personally guarantee a lease, what does that mean? And if you have a corporation that signs a lease, what's the, what's the difference there? And what does that mean? Well, we all are under the assumption if we start a corporation that we won't have to sign personally. Personally means I, Joe Gigantino, owe the money to whomever I'm signing for. It's not a corporation that owns it. And Usually, even with small businesses, even if you have a corporation, landlords will want you to sign personally. Um, and I'm sure you've kind of dealt with that as you, on, on your buildings. Um, you might have great assets. You might have, uh, you know, the corporation's doing well. You have great income, but they still want a personal guarantee. Me being on the other side of the fence now as a landlord, um, of course, I want personal guarantees when I have tenants sign a lease. Um, it, it, it makes me feel comfortable knowing that I've got a 
a person behind it that has assets. Either they have a home or they have money in the bank so they can pay the rent if something happens to the business. Um, I didn't really understand that when I, did, when I had no assets. I was just signing uh, equipment leases. Everything wanted your signature. If you just wanted to get a vendor for uh, the paper towels, the toilet paper, that type of stuff, they wanted a personal guarantee. So everything back in the day wanted a personal guarantee. I don't know now if it's a little bit different, but I would assume everybody just wants to be paid. They want to make sure they're getting paid. Yeah. And I mean, I think, well, let's talk about the CrossFit space. When you first got into it, you were more in the conventional gym space. Sure. Your first building that you bought was what? 20,000 square feet? Yeah. 23,000 square feet. Yeah, I mean, that's a big, big building, but let's just, you know, talk about our buildings. So we have a variety of sizes, but we'll talk about the one we're actually in right now. We're in a building that's uh, 8,000 square feet combined. And with this particular location, the, the landlord wanted me to sign, uh, we did a seven-year deal with the seven-year option and I signed personally for one year. Got it. Now, but that's because we have the financials to back it up for the company over time. But when I first got into our deals, every deal I did was personally guaranteed. And I think what's really important for, for owners to recognize is that when you personally guarantee this thing, I mean, they'll come after everything. Oh, absolutely. So when you sign a personal guarantee on a lease, and in your case, you know, you have a seven-year lease with a first-year personal guaranteed, if you close down the business today or something happened, you basically owe that rent for the next how many months until, you know, the year is up. Right. Uh, you know, we happen to be in a hot real estate market. So a lot of times it's okay. They could release this place very easily. If you're in other parts of the country where uh, maybe it's a little bit more difficult, uh, landlords want a full personal guarantee. Um, they want to make sure that they're going to get the rent for the period of time that you're signing up for. So let's just say it's 10,000 a month using a simple number times 12 months. That's 120,000 a year. If you signed a five-year lease with no increases, let's say it doesn't increase, that's $600,000 of liability that you're signing up for. Now, the way I look at it is if that building is, let's say it's a million dollars and you put down $100,000, well, you have liability of 900000 you owe the bank. Mm. But the nice thing about that liability is you have an actual asset, something you go touch, feel, and see, and think about it. You're able to control it with leverage with 10% down. So I own a million-dollar asset and I was only had to put down $100,000 to control it. So if you know, shit hits the fan and I have to sell or I have to go out of business, I can sell that property. If I'm on a lease and I have to go out of business after the first or second year, what I have to do then is either go release it to make sure that that owner gets his rent, or I got to cough up the balance of the, of the money of the 600,000 I owe. And most people can't do that. And so that's what drives them into bankruptcy or some other type of, you know, a bad situation. That's, that's really fascinating. So, I mean, if you think about those numbers, I don't know if the numbers are exactly but let's just say, for example, because if it's a million dollar building, your your rent, I guess, could be ten grand. But could I mean, be, could be less. Could be less. But I mean, I think that's a really fascinating way to look at it. Um, you know, for example, we have a seven year lease here at more than ten thousand a month, right? Okay. And so, if you look at our overall liability, we are on the hook for let's just say half a million dollars, whatever it is. Sure. But if the property is worth, I think that's a really, really interesting way that you just described that because I've never thought about it that way. And so I think for an owner operator, you know, anywhere in the country, I mean, the Bay Area is a little tough because the real estate here is very, very expensive. But if you're anywhere in the world and you're looking at your rent and it's more than your potential mortgage, that's something we need to talk about. But if you're also looking at what you're actually on the hook for, hey, it might be better for you just to go get this down payment and just, and just and sign. buy the property. So let's talk about that. 
unfortunately, we don't own any of our properties. I don't know if that's fortunate or unfortunate. One of the reasons why we never owned any of our properties is because we've just now solidified how big we need. I think early on, we thought we needed more. Now I think we're kind of finding our groove like this 6,000 square foot is kind of like our sweet spot. Maybe early on, I would have bought a 12,000 square foot building and maybe that would have been too much space. So that's the only reason why I think maybe I did a good job, but at the same time, I wish I had invested in real estate because then instead of paying rent, you're paying towards your mortgage. Right. And, you know, what happens is, is, you know, we run our businesses day to day. Um, Before you know it, you look up and it's been five years. I've been in my location. And let's just say you were paying, you know, hypothetically $1,000 a month on the principal. The rest is interest. You know, after five years, that's $60,000 that you've just earned in terms of equity. Now, that's if the property didn't go up at all. If the property went up, you know, 12,000 a year over that five years, you not only did you pay off 60,000, it went up 60,000, that's $120,000 to your net worth. One of the big things like on, you know, for smaller operators, um, they might not have a personal financial statement. When you buy a building, let's say you pay a million dollars for a building, you put 100,000 down on an SBA, on your personal financial statement, you're going to have a $900,000 debt. Some people don't like to want to be in debt. So they go, oh my God, I owe $900,000 on this building. But when you really look at the lease, we don't put a lease, um, small business owners don't put lease, um, what's the word, um, liability on their personal financial statement. So like on your personal financial statement for that year that you had assigned personally, it, let's say your rent was 10000 a month. You didn't put $120,000 on your, on your financial statement. What really you do, that is a liability. I mean, you are responsible for it. Again, thank God you have the business to pay for it. Really? So that, that's an interesting thought when you look at it. So people, I think that the balance of trying to find a lease, if I'm out there doing a three-year lease, someone's like, hey, should I do a three-year? Should I do a five-year? Should I do a seven-year? You really have to look at, A, what's the, what's the market like and what's my appetite for liability? If I have to sign a seven-year lease and I have to personally guarantee it, that's a lot of liability. Well, and on top of that, early in, in our career, we would sign short-term leases one year, two year, three year. And it's because our TI, our build out was minimal because we would just go into these warehouses. But now when we're coming into spaces like we're in right now, I mean, the TI is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. And so if you're, this is something for you guys all to think about, whether you're buying or you're leasing, the fundamental problem is I've seen some people do this where they sign a three-year lease. It costs them 50 grand to, to build it out. But then the problem you're running into is even if you're as profitable as you think you are, you're never going to recoup that initial investment because you don't have long enough on your lease. Don't have a long enough lease. Right. That's why you have these restaurants that do what? 20, 30, 40 year leases. Or in your particular case, you're actually building out a hotel. And I mean, that's a little bit of a different situation. But I mean, I imagine the lease or the licenses are very long term. Yeah, because you have to you know, have time to amortize all that cost over over your um, life of your lease. So if you're doing a short-term three-year lease and you have to put up a lot of money in terms of t- interior improvements, you're gambling that I'm going to be able to renew that lease in three years if you don't have an option. Um, if you don't have an option, the owner might say, my God, I, you know, market's gone up. I'm going to increase the rent or I've got another tenant that wants it. So it, it is a balancing act, you know, and hopefully um, the listeners have great brokers out there. Um, you know, find a great broker to help you. I could, you know, again, I'm available if they ever want to email me or contact me. I would, I would love to help. And, you know, we're in the business of finding uh, fitness real estate for, for, for people that are in the business from CrossFit to health clubs to studio type fitness. We, we like that um, niche because we understand the market. Um, so if there's people out there that are looking to, you know, 
buy a place or want to rent a place and they just can't afford it, uh, that's what we come in and we buy the facility, we fix it up, and then we know how to set it up for fitness. And so if you were uh, an owner-operator right now and you were, ex- you were interested in getting into real estate, um, on the, let's talk about um, first renting and then we'll talk about purchase. What are the key things that you would be looking for in a lease? I mean, a few that just, you know, obviously come out to my mind are, is it personally guaranteed or not? Are you zoned properly? Zoning is key. Zoning. Um, how long is the term? Do you have options? Right. Um, who's responsible for the AC units, things that, I mean, well, what stands out to you if you're, if you're a guy right now or a girl and you're looking to sign a lease tomorrow, what are the key non-negotiables you got to look for? I think you just mentioned, you know, a few of them that, that are super important. And I think a lot of people in the beginning stages, and again, when I was young and just starting out, didn't really understand it. Now, of course, being seasoned and being in the industry in the real estate industry, I understand it. Um, but uh, yeah, number one is the length of the term. How long do I have this facility? Um, what am I going to do if I can't renew the lease at the end of the uh, time? Do I have to move the business? Can I move the business? Am I in an area where I can move it very um, easily? The nice thing about CrossFit gyms is they do move fairly easily. It's just you have to find something in the local market because usually your members were coming within a couple mile radius of your of your gym. Um, so lease term is one um, I think uh, personal liability is is key. If if some of your listeners can, you know, when you're in rene- renegotiation, especially if it's on a you're on a an option and you're renegotiating your option, hey, they know you've been there for three or four years. You've paid your rent on time. You've never had a problem. Then you know why sign a personal guarantee if I don't have to? I mean, right there, if you could, if your listeners can not sign personal guarantees. Um, or, you know, partial personal guarantees that can save them huge liability over time. And if something foreseen happens where they had to, you know, get out of the lease, they're not, they're not on the hook for it. And, um, so how about like just triple nets, things like that? What, what do you think about that? What, what is, what is, when you think of triple nets, what should someone be aware of? What are triple nets? So the triple nets are the expenses that the ownership has on the property. And that's his taxes, insurance, and the upkeep of the property. Um, I know this sounds funny, but as a, as a landlord, um, my tenants pay all those, right? So they pay for all that. The rent, what they're paying for rent, the base rent is the income that I'm making. And hopefully that, you know, you're making, um, the landlord is making income above and beyond what he's paying for the mortgage. If he owns the building outright, then of course it's all income to him. Um, the things that, um, are key is if an owner sells a building here in California, if they sell a building and it, it gets reassessed uh, on your property taxes, 90, 90, 90% of the time that new owner is going to pass those new costs onto the, um, existing tenant, unless your lease says, you know, that they, that the, my, um, triple nets are capped or my pro- my uh, property taxes are capped at a at a 1% increase per year or 3% increase per year but i've seen a lot of people get hurt on that on that clause where a building that was you know maybe valued 20 30 years ago at a very small number and now the owner sold it has a new tenant in there with a long term lease sells it as a net investment um, now all of a sudden it gets reassessed at millions of dollars more and that gets attributed to now the triple nets and all of a sudden the the tenant can't make the payment so for those of you listening, I want you to just take a step back for a second because what you just said could be confusing for somebody. Your triple net expenses that the owner has on the building, me as a tenant, I am responsible for those more times than not. So basically when we negotiate our lease, it's, hey, it's you know $2 a square foot for the rent plus triple nets. And Correct. triple nets are basically a non-negotiable component in general, right? It's like 80 cents for triple nets. 
Now, what Joe's saying is that if a building were to sell, the landlord's uh, property tax or the, the, the tax base would go up. Sure, the tax the, base goes up. Therefore, your triple nets go up potentially from 80 cents to maybe even a dollar or more. And now all of a sudden your rent goes from net net $2.80 to net net $3, right? Right. Now, the one thing that your um, listeners should understand, if you're renting a place and you're paying triple nets, um, you can have those audited at the end of the year because the ownership should not be making money on your triple nets. Those are pass-throughs. So um, a lot of times owners don't keep good records and they, you know, you ask for them, I want to see exactly my year-end triple nets because again, they're an estimate. So usually what will happen is at the end of the year, what we do is in March, we go through, um, you know, the last year's expenses and we look and see, did we collect enough in our triple nets or did we collect too much in our triple nets? And then we go and make an adjustment to the tenant. If we didn't collect enough, then of course we send a bill for the difference. If we collected too much, then there would be a credit to the tenant. Um, so I would really make sure that you, um, as if you're a leasing space, is you audit your triple nets at the end of the year to make sure that the ownership, just to keep them honest, to make sure that they're not sticking in things that are not supposed to be under the triple nets. Maybe they're doing a capital improvement to the building um, and they're trying to charge you for that. So on a capital improvement, let's just say it's on a new roof, do you have to pay for that? It depends on what the lease says. So that's, again, on your lease and on your broker. And did you negotiate a good lease that you do, you know that the ownership's taking care of that? I, I think you know this conversation is going a little bit different than I anticipated. I'm really happy with where it's going because Joe has a very unique knowledge base. And I wish, I mean, I've had him as a mentor for many years, so I've been able to learn some of these things. But if you're new to the game, I mean, leases are no joke. Oh, right? they're no joke. It, it's, it's no joke. And it take the time to find an expert you know, and we'll get Joe's information towards the end of this or a local person, but you got to find someone who has an expertise in this. Now let's take, for example, you're, you're on a lease and you maybe want to make a play to, to purchase the building. How would you go about doing that? You as a landlord, let's just say, I want to buy your building. Sure. What approach should I take to be most favorable to you? Well, um, you know, if you don't ask, you don't know. Right. So, um, you can always ask your landlord, Hey, you know, would you ever think about selling the building? And they might say, yeah, you know, uh, life's changing. We're retiring, we're moving. Um, you never know. It's always about timing. And if the landlord says, no, I'm not selling, doesn't mean you don't ask them again in, you know, 90 days or six months or a year, every year, maybe on your lease um, anniversary, you might ask the uh, landlord, hey, are you ever think about selling the building? What you don't want is all of a sudden a sign going up that says he's selling the building and you didn't have an opportunity to buy it. If you're in a, a lease where your lease is expiring and you're thinking, do I want to resign or do I want to buy a building? And maybe your owner, the ownership of that uh, building that you're in doesn't want to sell it. Find a good broker in your area that knows the market that can find a building that's going to be conducive for you and look at the SBA program. Cause it, it, a lot of times it's, it's, it's helpful for people to understand that, Hey, I've got a couple bucks I can put down traditional you know, commercial building buying is 30% down if you're buying it as an investment. Um, and if you're buying it for um, personal use, 30% down. So on a million dollars, that's 300,000. That's a lot of, that's a lot of cabbage, you know, even on a $500,000 building, it's $150,000 at 30%. But 10%, I think a lot of people find that, wow, I, I didn't know it was that low on the SBA. Um, and I can, I can handle that. Well, let's talk about the SBA for a quick second. Uh, so you talk about SBA a lot. Um, that's a small business association yeah, loan. Yeah, small business association loan. And they have a couple different types. They have the 504, which is when you're buying a business um, along with a building. Um, and they also do, uh, you know, 
financing for people that not, you know, not in real estate that are just starting up a business, but it's always nice to have the asset of the building because that's what they're guaranteeing the loan with. So they're guaranteeing the loan. They, they allow 10% down. Now, if you are a guy and let's just say the building is a a million dollars and you need a hundred grand, if you don't have that hundred grand, plus you got to figure out your build out, right? So let's just take, for example, you buy a million dollar building, you have a hundred grand down plus 50 grand in gear, plus, you know, another 50 grand and whatever else TI's build out. I mean, you need two, 300,000 in cash. What would you recommend for someone like that? I mean, do you go beg, borrow and whatever from your family and friends? Or at that time, maybe that's not the best decision. Maybe start off renting. And then when you actually have some cash and some capital, then buy. Or would you say the opposite? You say, hey, go in and try and buy from early on. Well, really, you know, you got to do the analysis. You got to do a spreadsheet and you figure out what the, the place is renting for. And then if I was to buy this property, you know, what would my mortgage be? Rates are still fairly low. And it's a pretty simple formula. You don't, it doesn't need to be rocket science. You just figure out what the mortgage would be. Um, and my expenses, my taxes and insurance compared to what the rent is. And I think if it's astronomically, you know, different and you say, well, my God, I, it's a lot cheaper for me to buy this thing Then it's maybe worth to go borrow the $100,000 or from family and friends or, you know, pull your money together with your partners and buy the building. Um, because your mortgage, again, in your mortgage, you're going to be paying principal and interest. Now, of course, the majority of it's of interest, a little bit of principal, but, you know, years go by very fast, as you know, in the business, you've been doing this for a while now. And before you know it, after five years or 10 years and your building is appreciated with no work on your, I mean, appreciation doesn't, take any work. That's just the economy moving up. Um, also, paying down the, the uh, mortgage doesn't take any work. It's just sending in your check every month, just like if you were sending in a rent check. And if that $1,000 is clipping off after 10 years, that's a lot of equity that you've built up in your property. So I think we can all recognize the benefit of buying a building. Right. What would you say are the downsides to buying a building other than the one I recommended, which was, hey, I didn't know the size of the building that I was looking for. Maybe I would have overbought, maybe my zoning at the time, if I had bought a warehouse, that zoning nowadays wouldn't work, right? I need more of a retail location sure. for our business model. But assuming you know the, what the look you want, the feel you want, the size you want, what are the, what are the downsides to buying a building? Um, the downsides are, you know, what happens if there's a major uh, plumbing leak, that you have to, you know, that you might have to repair, say it's underneath the building that you didn't know about, or, you know, just something that happens to the building that you now have to fix where before, if it was covered under the rent lease, the landlord would have had to fix it. Um, what are the other downsides of owning? Um, well, obviously if the market shifts down, yeah, if the mar market shifts down, but you know, real estate is one of those things that if it, if it does dip, um, you just don't want to have to be selling on the dips, but majority over time, real estate's going up. We've been fortunate. We're in the Bay area. You know, real estate has really skyrocketed here throughout the country. I think, you know, most people can say right now, real estate is probably up in their market. Um, you know, I know a lot of friends and people that have contacted me said, God, I wish I would have bought five years ago when we talked, you know, now five years later, everything's up 30, 40, 50% compared to what it was five years ago. You know, will it come back down? And I always say, Usually not. It's hard to time the market, just like in stock buying. Um, I would say, you know, if you have the opportunity to buy, buy it now, as long as it's, you know, you've done your homework and it's a good price, buy it now, as long as you're going to be running your business in there for a long time. I've been fortunate enough. Now it's time to take some of my buildings and redevelop them. You know, I've had tenants in there, but now it's time to redevelop them to the higher and best use. And maybe your building you buy for your CrossFit lasts you 10 or 15 years. And then at some point, you know, you're done with the business and it's time to redevelop the property into something else. That's always an asset that you have in your portfolio. And, and so, you know, I think we talked about the pros, the cons. I mean, obviously there's a lot of pros. And now back to 
when you're looking at buying something, what are a few standout things that you're thinking about when you buy? Is it near freeways? Is it, um, what are some things that you're looking at? How long do you typically give yourself for, um, like, uh, to be able to identify if there's any problems in the building? I mean, what are some key things you think about before buying a building? Cause you've bought quite a few now, right? Well, we look for, we try to, you know, we'll work for fitness. Of course, that's what yeah. we kind of specialize in. Um, you know, is, is the parking correct? Is the zoning correct? Um, is there room for expansion for the tenant if they need to expand? If it's a single purpose building, um, you know, then there's probably not going to be any room to expand or, you know, is it big enough to put two tenants in there? Maybe, um, you know, the building, you know, CrossFit's usually range anywhere from three to 6,000, but in some parts of the, the country, they, they get a lot of space for very cheap. It's not like here in the Bay area. Um, they might have 10,000 square foot, you know, CrossFit's, um, what are the things I look for? Just the upkeep on the building. Did the owners, you know, maintain the building? Is there a lot of deferred maintenance? Am I going to have to put a lot of money into it? Probably the number one thing I look at is the roof, you know, because roofs are very expensive. Um, if the roof's in bad shape, that could be, you know, $100,000 to replace a roof. Um, ACs, air conditioning, that type of stuff. Are they old? Have they been serviced? Um, service plans. A lot of owners, um, you know, put in their contracts that they want you to, you know, of course you have to maintain the, the equipment that's on the building, just like you maintain the equipment that's inside the building. If it's your skiers or your ergs, you do maintenance on those. A lot of times landlords require to do maintenance on their equipment, which is the air conditioner, the heaters and that type of stuff. Cause you want them up and running so that when you're done with the lease, the next tenant coming in has equipment that's been, you know, upgraded. Right. Well, I think that's, so now in, in regards to like all things, real estate in regards to all things, you know, for all, us in our business model, it started off like bigger is better. We started off in a small square footage, 1500. Then we kind of grew, 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 grew. Now we recognize that maybe those 16,000 square foot space that we have off seaboard is too big for our model potentially. And so we've kind of consolidated down to this two floor model where you have, you know, two, 3000 square foot models where you could basically optimize the space based on what you've seen in the health club industry and CrossFit, right? Are there like key sizes you've seen be more successful or less successful? Because I mean, you've looked into Orange Theory, you've opened up fitness, I mean, you've opened up gyms, you've opened up CrossFits. I mean, you've opened up all different types of things on the spectrum. Have you seen kind of something basic uh, size-wise that someone should be looking for? Well, the one for? thing with CrossFit is there is, no, there is no criteria, you know, on size. It's not a franchise um, like an Orange Theory or other franchises out there that you see, Snap Fitness, Nine Rounds. And franchises have a very uh, unique set specifications that they're looking for. So if you go into an Orange Theory, they traditionally look exactly the same. They have the lobby, the bathroom corridor, then they have their you know studio behind the glass area. Um, so they try to make it fit, and I'm not sure what their numbers are, maybe 1,600 square feet to 3,000 square feet. But I think if you looked at the spectrum of CrossFits, there's All everything the from you know 800 square foot racquetball court, that's a CrossFit studio, up to 10,000 square feet, that's CrossFit studio. So there is no you know strict specifications, but in franchising there is. So if you're looking to buy a franchise uh, fitness product, if it's a nine rounds or snap fitness or anytime fitness, they have a real estate department that'll help you find that lease. And usually those type of businesses aren't buying, you know, their real estate. They're spending quite a bit of money for the franchise. They've got to have a, 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 a huge capital improvement to fix up the, the building. And they're usually in, 
you know, shopping centers and uh, strip malls and that type of stuff. And, you know, Jason, back in the day, you remember, and landlords were not very happy with fitness, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago because they took up a lot of parking. Now with the way of the internet and Amazon, um, real, uh, you know, real, real estate owners that own shopping centers um, love fitness. Yeah. I look, mean, it's, it's really I, changed. It's, well, it's I love really that. changed. I love that because years ago, right? It, you'd have a really tough time. Oh, parking's a big issue. And obviously the city, there's certain rules, but I mean, if you're a boutique fitness center, like we are, I mean, people love it because you're bringing in demographic. That's you're bringing people in and that's what these shopping centers want, right? Because I mean, a lot of times with all this shopping online now, they're not getting the same type of participation in these, in these shopping centers. And you've seen that, right? Well, look at the malls. You know, malls are downsizing. A lot of these big stores are downsizing their footprint. So uh, landlords are looking for fitness concepts. Um, fitness concepts right now in the real estate industry are huge. From uh, the Orange Theories, Barry's Boot Camp, anything soul that's going to drive yeah. Soul Cycle, anything that's driving you know women and men to those classes, twenty to thirty people at a time every hour, cycling in and cycling out. The nice thing about those classes is they know they're there for an hour. They're in and they're out. They stop next door to pick up something for dinner, or they're picking up you know something at the CVS. So now they see the the trend of um, fitness does draw um, a. a the, the right type of crowd to their property that can help their other tenants out. And that's what they're looking for. Well, I think that's a strong negotiation tactic when you're going into a location. Hey guys, we're NC fit. This is what we do. We attract this type of demographic. This is our average age demographic. We want to bring people to your shopping center. And it's a nice way for the landlord. It's a differentiator between you and something else. Sure. You know, and it really that only counts if it's in a strip mall or some type of center that has multiple tenants. If you're looking at a freestanding building, that probably doesn't matter. You just right. want to look at your, your, you know, tenants next to you or the buildings next to you, are they impeding on my parking? Do I have enough space for parking? You know, that's key, especially during the times that you're going to be having your classes and stuff. You want to make sure that people can park. Um, and is it zoned right? Do I have an area, especially if it's CrossFit, do I have an area to run outside? You know, are they going to be, you know, in, in the middle of traffic or do I have an area big enough behind my building I can run? So I know, and that was, you know, that's difficult to find. Um, you know, if you look at most Orange Theories or most Snap Fitness or Anytime Fitness, they don't have that aspect because they're in a strip center or shopping center and they're not running outside. Um, where with CrossFit, we tend to do that. And so we were always looking for property where we have that ability to use extra space outside the building. Well, guys, um, if you're looking for space, ain't you an expert, you know, hit up Joe. Joe has an email that's the easiest email in the world is joe at workout.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's another story for another day. But he uh, he sold that domain <laughs> a while ago and, and uh, crushed it on it. Now, guys, I talk about Joe as his real estate mogul in the fitness space doing his thing. But what he's really good at is the art of uh, sales. And so what's a quick 20-second inspiration for a gym owner out there that's stuck at 100 members, want to get to 150 Give us 20 seconds of Joe Jig inspiration. God, I don't know if I could do it in 20 seconds. Um, I think just making sure you track how many guests are coming into your facility, how many new workouts are you getting from uh, non-members, um, and then have a system and a way to follow up. Sometimes it takes six to eight to 10 touches before you can get somebody to join your facility. Um, make sure you understand that it's hard to close standing up. It's hard to sign someone up standing up. You know, after they do their workout, set a time for them to come back 15 minutes before class to sit down with you. You can go over their goals, um, make sure you understand what they're looking for, and then put them on a program that's going to work for them. Yeah, one of the things I always loved about Joe is he'd give me his big stack of leads when I used to work at the, his, his fitness center. He'd say, hey, 
the more the more calls you make, the more leads you get, the more opportunities you get, the more op- the more memberships you get. Got it. So get out there, keep grinding it. If people want to find out more about Joe Gigantino, what you guys have going on, uh, what's the website? Where can they find you at? Um, best is just email Joe at workout.com on Instagram. We have, uh, at weights and bars. Um, and our, uh, website is we buy fitness, real estate. We buy fitness, real estate. All right, guys. Well, Hey, keep rising the tides. Hope everybody has a great day. Thanks, Jay. Thank you.